Welcome, everyone, today. Again, we thank, so appreciate uh, the care and thoughtfulness that so many show in uh, these last couple of weeks while we were traveling in four different states. We had a, a very joyous journey, and I want to welcome back every Sunday as we are in this time, this unusual time in our country. It's always, there's so many different things happening and factors that are affecting many people. Um, but every week, it's just a joy to be able to reconnect some. And uh, I always think, obviously, as from a pastoral perspective, you think, wish we could get everybody on one Sunday at the same time, <laughs> everybody here that we're all together. It's just a not very unusual time. But at any rate, I want to say a heartfelt, happy, exuberantly happy, warm welcome to Tanya and Annabella being back today. It's so good to see you there. They're always on the other side of that camera, right? Often being with us in, in virtual, and, and, uh, but this is the first time in, in so long. And so we're so glad that you, and thank you for serving today. Did they do a beautiful job? Just such a blessing. Just brings such a, such a sparkle of joy. And my goodness, talk about happy to be back. Karen, we're so happy you're back. Welcome, Karen, with warm uh, applause. I mean, we're just gr so glad you're back, Karen. Keep praying for her. All those metrics are looking great, except a little bit increased heart rate, so doing a lot of walking. So pray for Karen. Of course, we keep Nancy Bond in prayer every day in this time in her life as she's walking through this, this season of her, her journey. Uh, and we know that um, as we've had such a, an honor of being able to hear her express, as she does in such a, an effervescent, beautiful way, just her love for Jesus, it just shines through this very, very difficult part of, of, of life that, that one day we're all going to experience one way or the other, and we love Nancy more than words can say, and, and I know you do, and keep, keep her in prayer daily for this time. She's under, got great care, and, and um, we just uh, want to surround her daily with, with prayer. For Nikki, quarantine for some issues, health issues, keep her lifted up. For Kathy Lufion has had a diagnosis recently of some concern, lift her up, of course. For Sylvia, and uh, Joe asks God's rich blessing upon them daily and those who come alongside to help and to care. And um, I know um, Amanda, we're trusting God for Amanda for some health issues. And, and there's others. I'm not obviously touching the whole list. But please, uh, as we pray daily, remember, I'm reminded of something that's not really the message today, but I want to bring this as a kind of a banner over these next seven weeks until Thanksgiving that I think is an easy banner to remember. So I want to give it to you in one Bible verse. You can remember it's very easy. There's four little parts of it, but it's very easy. Acts 2.42, I want to bring as a kind of a banner of faith, uh, a banner from my heart to yours. Uh, reminds me of that wonderful Song of Solomon verse that says, his banner over us is love. Uh, we used to sing that song endlessly back in the 70s. His banner over us is love. And that's true. And this banner, his banner over us is love, and this banner of love from, from our Savior in Acts 2.42 tells us something vital, obviously about the early church, but it tells us something vital about our church. We can bring and import this powerfully into the present in a way that I, I pray can be kind of a, a visionary focus for us for seven weeks up until uh, the Thanksgiving time, and that is they all continued in the apostles' doctrine and in the fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So a modern translation would take that 
They continued steadfastly, or they persevered. I like to say they pressed in. (laughs) They pressed on. (laughs) They dug in deeper to the apostles' teaching, to all the apostolic teaching. That's just a phrase that that first of these four apostolic teaching just is a phrase referring to the totality of of the the great life-giving realities of living in the new covenant, being new covenant people. After uh, living, I like to say, on the sunny side of the empty tomb, and all of the instruction, the helpful exhortation, the wise, gracious impartation that we have throughout all the epistles of the New Testament, and everything from the references to eternal truths to daily practical living, the life-giving truths that Brother Lou brought us last week about communicating and the, the vitality, the urgency, and the need of understanding what our, how effective our words are and how much our words mean and how valuable communication is. Aren't you thankful for communication? Amen? How much we need it. So apostles' teaching, the first of four. Secondly, the breaking of bread. A wonderful, descriptive, and elegant phrase in the New Testament that has a dual meaning. That we often find ways to sit down and actually just share a meal with a brother or sister in Christ. There's life, there's kingdom value in that. And then it's an oblique reference, of course, to the, to the most important meal of all, the Lord's table that I've invited you to be praying for, for preparation on October 24th. So the apostles' teaching, number one, the breaking of bread in a dual, a dual meaning, number two. Number three, the fellowship, the fellowship, with a, cat, with a definite article, not just a backslap and a bear hug at a potluck supper. That's good. But it's, it's understanding that when we share Christ with another brother or sister, there is a partaking of life. There is a partaking and exchanging of the, of the life of Christ between us. The fellowship. And the fourth of these four um, banner truths is prayers. And in that sense, I'm sensing a great stirring that in all of this unusual time we've been through, we need fresh strategies to engage real, active prayer individually and in small groups and in our gatherings. So that prayer is like the oxygen of the church. So that will be kind of a banner. And now I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 19. And as our children are going for Explorers and uh, Pathfinders class, for which, as I like to say, we're just incredibly grateful. And these leaders that teach um, are such a gift from God. In Luke chapter 19, I want to begin to think about encounters with Jesus. Encounters with Jesus that were pivotal, powerful, effective, life-changing, and have enduring impact on how you and I are indeed, yes, called to meet him. When we invite to the table on October 24th, to the Lord's table, very simple observance, non-liturgical, just responding to what Jesus himself commanded in the simplest of ways. We express that because we believe that um, in all the diversities of ways that the body of Christ around the world meets at the Lord's table. Just think of it. Think of the diversity of it. Um, Jesus promised that 
he would meet us at the table. And in Luke 19, we see a meeting with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus that highlights this kind of keynote here. I'd like to ask you to speak aloud with me because when we apply an encounter from the 18th chapter of Luke that we'll look at in briefly to this encounter with Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Luke 19, we get um, together, we get a clear picture of something that we need to know not only for ourselves but for our vision for being the people of God in a culture which is often openly hostile to Christ, if not in covert, subtle ways. So read aloud with me uh, this uh, statement here from Luke chapter 18, verse 27, here on the screen, if you just read that aloud with me. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Say it again. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus spoke those words in response to a question from the disciples out of their perplexity when he said how difficult it will be for one laden down with great wealth to see the relatively greater value of eternity and to lay that wealth aside if necessary to come to Jesus. Now, I said it in different words. You, you know that verse as how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples were saying, Lord, then who could be saved? <laughs> and then what did he say? Let's say it again. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, we're going to see later why that exchange sheds light on the encounter that we read in this chapter, that first I'd like you to go to the conclusion of it before we read the story. In your Bible, if you would go to that 10th verse and um, simply read with me, I'm reading from the ESV on this section, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham, verse 9, and then verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This encounter that we're going to read about today highlights a truth which can clear the air for us in understanding why the gift of salvation is so life-transforming. For here is the thing we want to connect. The gift of God in saving us from our sins demonstrates more powerfully than any other single thing in life that what is impossible with man is possible with God. The gift of salvation to be delivered from what the Bible describes as a slave market of sin and brought into the kingdom of our risen king who can transform even those things about us that are so wrong and so flawed and bring us into his eternal glory 
set free, redeemed, cleansed, washed by the blood of the Lamb, made right with God. And once we arrive in his presence in eternity, we're there fully seeing him face to face, and we know him even as we are known. And all of that because what does verse 10 say? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, for the moment, we're going to set aside that title, the Son of Man. It is, has a very important meaning in the fulfilling, fulfilling of prophecy from the book of Daniel. But that's aside from what we're talking about today. I want to emphasize the two goals that are, that are spoken there of the Messiah's mission. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now read the story from verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. That's very significant. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He'd heard of him, but now he wanted to know who is this Jesus. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Oh, how well I understand that. <laughs> so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, let's pause there just for a moment and think about the the vivid picture here of this of this yearning that's in the heart of Zacchaeus to see Jesus he is aware of how the words of Jesus have touched the hearts of people all across Galilee and all across the region of Perea and into Judea, and now in that 18th chapter, the Bible tells us that Jesus was now decisively moving toward Jerusalem in the last series of, of miracles and encounters and discourses. And as he comes to Jericho, that, that city closer to Jerusalem, that would be the last major place of commerce to pass through before getting to Jerusalem proper, he's passing through and Zacchaeus, who's heard all of this, has his curiosity peaked. He's small of stature, and it's almost comical to imagine someone as the wealthy typically did. We know from other parts of the New Testament, wore fine clothes. And can you just imagine this guy in a, you know, like a, a what would be the equivalent today of a, maybe a $2,000 Gucci suit, you know, he's crawling and, you know, leather shoes and he's crawling and he's going up to this, this uh, sycamore tree and he's climbing up. In those days, of course, it wasn't suits and leather shoes. It was a, a flowing robe. It was uh, ornate uh, garments. It was something that exemplified his status in society, no doubt. And so he's climbing up into the sycamore fig tree. And in that climb, we see a seeker. Gee, Zacchaeus is seeking. He's seeking to know, who is this Jesus? He's, he's yearning, and there's something in that exuberant uh, 
energy that he gives that catches the Lord's attention in a very distinctive way. (laughs) Now, read the 10th verse again. Biblical scholars will say, I think pretty universally, when you look at the whole, the thematic whole of the 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, many have cited this 10th verse of the 19th chapter as the theme verse for the entire Gospel of Luke. Obviously, that's an arbitrary choice, but it's a good one because in one brief phrase, Luke 19.10, we get the dual directional power of Jesus coming to encounter individuals. And friends, you know this, he's doing it today. He's doing it now. Son of Man came for two things in this summary, to seek and to save. So in a very real sense, we all know we can say, I wouldn't know Jesus. I wouldn't have the assurance of the gift of eternal life that he promises in the gospel had he not sought me. In a real sense, all of us can say, and I could retrace my journey, and I could take time to tell you the story, and then you could do the same, and and we could show how that there were ways he sought me. He sought me. That I, you know, I wasn't, I, I was not in the frame of mind or heart that would have found him on my own. I don't know about you. I was wandering. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6 says, and have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh laid upon Messiah the iniquity of us all. So so there is a real tangible sense. There's a personal sense. There's an ongoing sense in which my seeking him would always be inadequate. (laughs) And yet, this text does not let us slip into the error of hyper-predetermined, meticulous determinism is a fancy way to say it, but, but that God just goes after you and you have nothing to do with it. Now, this text emphasizes an intriguing balance. It's all of grace. Salvation is all of him. But there's, a, there's an intriguing dynamic tension here that we must not miss. Jesus was impressed by the seeker even though Jesus knew his seeking would amount to nothing unless the Savior was seeking him. So so I love, I think of it this way, it's a surprisingly spontaneous seeker who, who meets Jesus the master seeker who alone can save us. Read aloud from your Bible, the 10th verse with me please. For the Son of Man is come to seek, and to save the lost. That included you and me. And there's a sense we must grasp in our our culture of pluralism, in our culture of so many conflicting ideologies around us, so many conflicting views even of what it means to be a Christian today. There's 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 a lot of 
fragmentation in our culture today, even about what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus. And when you come to the text of the gospel, you come, you find yourself confronting an absolutely life-giving reality. None of us can live for him in the way we need to unless he first calls us, seeks us, draws us, stirs us. There's a magnetic power in the person of Jesus that we cannot adequately put into words in any sermon or any poem or any song. It goes beyond that. The seeker is seeking Zacchaeus. The master came to seek and to save the lost. But here's the interesting thing. Zacchaeus gets singled out because... In this situation, his response to the master seeker shows us that what we have is a surprising example and a very, very needed example for all of us that no human being is beyond the redemptive reach of the life-giving power of the Savior. I like to summarize Luke 19.10 and the whole aspect of this, which, as I said, is a great banner over the whole gospel of Luke. He came to seek and to save the lost. We saw it in chapter 15 with the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. In that case, there is an incremental increase in the relative value and significance of the lost nobody likes to lose a coin a few dollars I dropped that those twenty dollars on the somewhere and I lost it be a little bit of a loss but it in the bigger scheme of things it would be relatively minor a lost sheep for a sheep herder it wasn't just a it wasn't a pet it was a it was a responsibility. It's a part of their entire livelihood. But then that, that 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke incrementally increases the value to magnify something that in Luke 19.10 then becomes the theme that Zacchaeus' discovery shows us. And that is there is no more tragic loss than the loss of a soul. In eternity and that Jesus prioritized the seeking and the saving of every single human being so that we can say as a summary we can say that the infinite eternal value of each individual person is God's primary concern and, G and Zacchaeus now becomes a, a great example for a different reason because we can say what I just said and we can all nod our heads and agree and say, yes, amen. Now, what time do they open the cafeteria? But we might miss that one of the things that is also true of all of us is that in our minds, now we may not say it, I'll admit that, but all of us in our minds in different ways can have a kind of a subtle feeling 
let's say, about certain kinds of people. <laughs> that they might be really, really hard to reach with the gospel. There can be in, in, in our minds and hearts, and, and it could be a variety of things. It could be different prejudices for different people. I'm not just talking about one bias here. This could be many different prejudices. But that deep in our mind, that if we thought, if, if we spotlighted a particular person, and if I named that person and we described it, we might say, well, that's going to be a hard nut to crack. That's going to be tough. And if we even think that way for a minute, then not only have we missed how lost we were, but we've also missed, more importantly, the goal of the gospel. So the goal of the good news of Jesus Christ that should animate this church, that should be the, the, the compelling, stirring motive why people want to say, yeah, in our congregational life, there are many things we may think about and we want to take care of, but there's nothing more crucial than that we be good news people with the good news of Jesus Christ, both stirring us to spiritual growth and equipping us to always, always be seeing other individuals as objects of the Savior's infinitely wise love. If I see another person as the object of the Savior's infinitely wise love, it will affect the way I see my church. It will affect the way I see my time. It will affect the way I certainly see my attitudes when I'm under pressure in a work day or in a situation and something's grinding me and I'm responding out of my angst or anger or irritation. Doesn't mean those things won't happen because we're all, we're all being worked on by the master, the master shaper. Amen? But when they happen, we'll quickly, we'll quickly, there will be a quickness in us, and we see this quickness in Zacchaeus. We'll see it, and we'll say, oh, wait a minute. I see. That's, I repent, Jesus. I repent. There's something about being in the presence of Jesus that makes repentance quick, clear, specific, and complete. And if there is a lack of repentance for sin in our lives, there is only one overarching reason and that is we're missing the beauty of what it means to be in his presence. Now think of this guy Zacchaeus, okay? This is why this is why it's so intriguing. Because he's a tax collector. Three things that are highlighted about him in the text. One is that he's a tax collector. So that's a strike against him to start with with the average common person in Israel because for more than one reason, the tax collectors first of all just like us, they don't like, nobody likes to deal with the person extracting money out of your pocket. Okay, so that's one. Secondly, in their case, often the way under the Roman Empire, the way the publicans and tax collectors would get their job and would get uh, their opportunities to have these jobs was sometimes even a process that would be similar to somebody going to a training school and paying a price to get training and qualification to do a certain thing. Well, it could be a pretty expensive prospect. So they would even have to get money to become a tax collector so that they could make a lot more money. In other words, their goal was to have a very affluent lifestyle, and they could get that under the aegis of the Roman authority, 
And it is for that reason, because the Roman authority represented the false view that Caesar was a god, that though the Roman Empire allowed a lot of relative freedom for the districts like Judea where uh, Jewish faith was primary, they, they tolerated and they even accommodated in many ways and even helped in some ways the Jewish uh, people for uh, broad political reasons. But that didn't change the fact that there was an identification in the mind of the average person that that tax collector works for Rome, works for Caesar, represents Caesar, and put on top of that, he's overcharging me. <laughs> and it's hard. And they're often probably pretty self-satisfied about it. I'm the tax collector. You're the peon. Pay up. That's all there is to it, kind of like our IRS. There's no, you know, if, you, if you're in the wrong, uh, you're, you're, the burden of proof is on you. If they're in the wrong, uh, the burden of proof is still on you. So, so that's, kind of, that's, that's the way it was. So a chief tax collector, and, and it's pretty clear that among them, because Jesus was criticized in the 15th chapter, again, for eating with publicans and sinners, it's pretty clear that, that men like Zacchaeus were despised. Not only that, this guy is a chief tax collector. He's a leader of tax collectors. He's the manager over the others. And he's very wealthy. And this is the guy. Now, this is the guy who's seeking Jesus. What gives? How does that work? Now, there's a, there's a note in the text here that says, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. And it shows us not only why Jesus was calling him out, He's small of stature. He's a, young, he's, a, he's a short guy. And people who go through life at less, less than, let's say, what, six feet, we have some disadvantages in life, don't we? I mean, you know, some, some, we, get, we get teased a lot. We get, uh, it's not as always, you know, it's, there's all kinds of short jokes, you know. You probably don't have to mid down to, too low to tie your shoes. You know, there's all these kinds of comments about short people. But he's a small in stature, but he's spontaneously bold. And, and as, he, as he goes to that tree, as he's climbing that tree, he doesn't really know who Jesus is, but there's something in him from what he's heard that causes him to know this is someone I must see and no, he knew there was a magnificent reality about the master teacher that laid claim on his very best energy. And that in itself gives us a kind of, a, of an inflection point in this story because you have to stop and think about why did he climb the sycamore fig tree? He climbed it for one reason, because of what he'd heard. That's all. At this point, because remember, Jesus has been migrating now, moving the apostolic, the disciple band, down southward toward his final mission into Jerusalem. And Jericho is that last connecting city of great commercial significance that he's crossing through. And Zacchaeus has heard the wonderful things Jesus has done, no doubt, no doubt the 
the stories had been told about how there were over 5,000 people on the hillsides up in Galilee, about 75 miles from where he was, who with their children, their families, so huge crowds, and that they were hungry and there was no food. And Jesus blessed a small basket of loaves and fishes, and the disciples gave them out in simple acts of faith, and the entire multitude was fed by the magnitude of God's provision. Zacchaeus had heard it. So Zacchaeus is a great illustration for you and me of why we need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in our culture, why the good news of Jesus Christ needs to resound from these churches, why these hills need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it was the hearing of his ear that stirred him to want the seeing and the grasping of that connection. It's exactly what happens. There's two great examples here in Old Testament and in New Testament I want to give you of this fact. Because this is something that distinguishes Zacchaeus as an example of how God brings this salvation to us. In Job 42.5, Job, in an entirely radically different context and setting, has the same experience because Job is in perplexity and obviously suffering and obviously deeply distressed and in angst. But at the conclusion of that, that vast array of conflicting advice and all of the argumentation that takes place in that book, then God's glory is seen in a whirlwind. And the voice of God becomes audible. And the text tells us in Job 42.5 that Job said, I, I put my hands on my face, he says before this. I slap my, my hand over my mouth. I see how inadequate my, my feeble mind has been. And then he says this, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you, oh God. I've, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is where Zacchaeus was. He'd heard of Jesus. He wanted, he wanted to get in that sycamore tree. He wanted to see Jesus. And, and all he wanted was just to see him. He hadn't, here he, he's way up here. He's up on there. He's climbing up, and he, he wants to see him. <laughs> He wants to see Jesus. He wants to get up there. He wants to look down and see him. Jesus wanted more for Zacchaeus than just to see him. He wanted to meet him. And when you hear the gospel, when your friends hear the gospel, when others hear the gospel, it stirs something. I want to see him. And then you really, really get the meaning of why of why in the text of Romans 10, 17, there's even a, an accent on the person of Christ. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very intriguing aspect of the language of Romans 10, 17. A very familiar verse to most everyone here, I'm sure. And this is the wording here. For faith comes, say it with me just with that little graphic. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's intriguing that the text, the form of the verb akuo to hear there, 
implies a hearing from within as if, and re referencing the person of Christ, as if this is really the sense of the text, and it's, it's impossible to carry it over into English adequately, but the sense of the text is that when the gospel is proclaimed faithfully under the grace of God, even through fallible vessels, but when the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, there's a sense in which the hearer is hearing Christ. Obviously, not perfectly, because every preacher is a fallible vessel, right? Because every preacher is imperfect. Because there are no perfect preachers. There are no perfect communicators. But in spite of that human inadequacy, Romans 10, 17 is saying, how can they hear unless someone is sent? How can they preach unless they're sent? Whoever may call upon the name of the Lord may be saved, so then faith comes by, what? Said hearing, and hearing itself comes through the message about Christ. As if Christ is speaking to the soul through the gospel. It is a wonderful fact that Zacchaeus met Jesus and it came about because he responded to what he heard. Now, this, this kind of gives us then a good way for us to think about. I like the fact that he, he climbs the sycamore fig tree. The sycamore fig tree was, was used as an excellent source of shade for the Israeli people. It was In the Old Testament, it was symbolic of a secure dwelling. And it was harvested and used for the sturdiest kind of furniture crates and bins and, and, and heavy pieces of, of, of uh, constructed furniture. In a, in a way, we might say what Zacchaeus did unknowingly was he climbed into a tree that symbolically tells us that when you meet Christ, you're going to find a place of refuge. You are going to be nurtured, nourished and fed by the fruit of his grace. And it's going to be dependable. It's sturdy. Well, so what happens? Delighted by Zacchaeus yearning to see Jesus, to see him, Jesus invites himself to the tax collector's home. In, in, in doing so, Jesus broke through the barriers that others would have put around Zacchaeus. Because here is what this story surprisingly brings us. Remember that we've said <laughs> Jesus himself has warned against the corrupting power of excessive wealth, hasn't he? Didn't he in the 18th chapter say, didn't he say, that it's really hard, this super wealthy guy that he said, look, if you'll lay everything down, if you'll give everything away and come follow me, you can be my, you can be my disciple. That's all you have to do. Just, just you know, just, just take this, just do this. Whatever, whatever the total is, okay, whatever the total is, just toss it aside. And then you can come and be my disciple. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> no, that's not wonderful. <laughs> He's not happy about it. In, 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 in Luke 18, verse 25, it says the man was very wealthy and he went away very sad. And that's when Jesus made that statement. So how is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Now that's true. But the people, look in your text in Luke 19 at who it was that started grumbling 
look at that text in verse in in your Bible. It says after after Zacchaeus came down from the tree and welcomed Jesus gladly. What does it say? All the people saw this. Would you circle all the people? Because guess what happens in this text? A surprise. We're used to the scribes and Pharisees being the antagonists of Jesus. Look what happens here. The very people, circle those words, all the people. All the people saw this. And what did these people say who had been seeing miracles and had been excited to follow Jesus? And they had, many of them probably had come from Galilee. Some of them had eaten that miracle lunch on the hillsides of Galilee. But what did they begin to do? They began to grumble. He's going to the house of a, let me paraphrase this, a filthy, rich tax collector. <laughs> He's going, and here's the rub. Here's what can happen in our minds. For them, un unconsciously, I'm sure, they had begun to demonize the wealthy. Now think about this. Jesus, when it comes to saving the soul of an eternally valuable individual, Jesus makes no distinction between the poor and the rich. <laughs> now I wrote that on the slide and I thought, no, somebody's going to say, well, he, he did teach about the dangers of the rich. Well, he did, for sure. But when it comes to the soul, Jesus makes no distinction. In other words, here's the kicker. Not only does he care infinitely more than we can imagine for every person suffering, suffering poverty and deprivation and affliction and ostracization and oppression, yes. But lest we get on our spiritual high horse, and begin to think somebody who's wealthy, affluent, somehow they're more inherently distant from God, then Jesus corrects that. He responds to Zacchaeus, the wealthy guy who got some of his money, a lot of his money probably the wrong way, and says, I'm coming to your house today. Yes, Jesus is associating directly with one who would be despised by many, even in the crowd of his own followers. There's been a strain in some areas of writing these days in terms of how people see Christianity that somehow there's something inherently evil about a person gaining wealth. And it's a very insidious false idea. Because as much as compassion for those in need is, is a primary value in Scripture, no doubt about that, the eternal value, the infinitely eternal value of every individual soul in the eyes of God is the same for the super wealthy as it is for the super poor. And Jesus demonstrates that Zacchaeus running into that sycamore tree, as awkward as that probably looked the way he was dressed, Peering down to see Jesus, let me put it simply, Jesus likes that. <laughs>
And so the surprises from the seeking Savior is, we can conclude this way, that he sees Zacchaeus' initiative, good old Zac, he, he sees Zac's initiative as a sign of budding faith. He's heard the word. He's heard about Jesus. He climbs into the tree. He's seeing him now, and Jesus says, that's faith. And that's what I'm seeking. <laughs> and then he singles out one of the most disliked and scorned people. He singles him out, not just to talk to him, but to say, I'm going to come to your house and sit at your table and visit with you. Nowhere in here is Mrs. Zacchaeus consulted about food prep. We, I think that's a little bit off the story here. But we can assume he probably had a lot of servants that could go quickly. Come on, I'm bringing a guest home. Jesus is coming to my house. Let's get together. Let's, let's kill the fatted calf. And however they manage the logistics of that, what is crystal clear is that not only did Jesus want to go to where he lived, but they sat Dr. H. A. Harry Ironside, 1940s expositor, imagines them closing the door and having this quiet conversation for quite some period of time, and all the crowd is outside wondering, what in the world are they talking about in there? And then, of course, we see what happens. Zacchaeus stands up, and he says, Lord, I, he says, I'm going to return everything I've ever stolen, and, and I'm going I'm to even do more than is required to be sure everybody has gotten restoration. You, what you see in Zacchaeus is a repentance that touched the very depth of his soul. Zacchaeus realizes quickly his need to repent, and he acts on it. Why? Because he's been with Jesus. An ancient question was asked in Genesis chapter 18 that the Zacchaeus story answers. And that question, would you ask it with me, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is what we started with earlier. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He's seeking to save. And the greatest joy this congregation and in our lives will ever know is being in sync with that wonderful mission of good news for every person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that in all of our lives today that we could embrace today what is dramatically shown in this, uh, this one who would not be our choice, would not be for many of those in that very crowd of people, even those who loved Jesus, even those that were following him, they instinctively needed a quick attitude adjustment. They needed to see that someone that in their category would not have been a candidate for the kind of grace that, that we taste so freely and joyously. Lord, we may have a different category. We may have someone we wouldn't instinctively think that your grace can reach. And yet, Lord, may we walk in the joyous exuberance that Zacchaeus showed to run, to run to every place where we can see you and to know that those that are running with us, that you're calling, you're calling, you're calling from the north to south, the east and the west, from every kindred and tribe and nation under heaven, Lord, the poor and the rich, individuals, men and women of every ethnic description and every cultural background to come to know our living Savior and your victorious life now.